Welcome to Translation Confidential. This is Peter Argandizo and Patrick Daly. And today's topic is going to be Google deprecated my translation widget. Now what? So this is obviously a common question that comes up. Um, we're going to talk about um, how folks have used the Google widget. And now that it's deprecated, uh, what are some actions you should take? What are some strategies you can use? So I think it's going to be a, a really valuable podcast. But why don't we get started with a little bit of news here at Argo. Um, we're really proud uh, to have released the Argo service portal this week. And um, just a quick description that allows all of our customers to log in um, and access all of their financial transactions here at Argo. They can see their quotes. They can see their sales orders. They can check the status of their projects. I and mean, you can see language by language um, how far along we are in your project. And of course, you can access all of your invoices. So it's a handy little tool. Um, there's also some budgeting, um, some budgeting features. So that way, when you're looking to set a budget, you can see what your past spend um, was. So it's great. So far, really good feedback. All of our beta testers have loved it. Uh, had a huge week this week with rollout to our customers as well. Uh, go ahead, Patrick. Yeah, I think it's really cool. Uh, one of our unofficial core values is transparency. So I think really opening the curtain up to the clients and letting them have that level of access that they might not have with other providers is a really, really cool thing that they can have. Yeah, I think it's going to be huge. Um, and it's pretty unprecedented in the sense that I think a lot of other agencies don't have that level of transparency. So good stuff. Um, little sneak peek next week, we're going to be adding video interpretation to our list of services. So that's going to be great. We can better handle meetings that require visuals um, as well as uh, handling American Sign Language since now it'll be on video. So more information to follow there. But why don't we go ahead and roll in? Uh, Patrick, why don't you get us started? Why don't you define what the hell is a Google widget? Mm -hmm. So basically it was um, a language selector that you could add to your site. It's basically a button and then with the drop down menu with... Uh, roughly 80 languages on there. And basically what that does is it will in real time machine translate your website. Um, so you can just kind of add that little widget or that button, and then you have access to all those languages. And again, it is machine translation. Um, so some of the positives of that are that there is really no cost to it um, and that it's really easy to implement. You basically just enable that button or that widget and then you're good to go. The negative, obviously, is that it's machine translation. It has not been reviewed by a human, and the quality of that translation is probably not great. I was going to ask. I'm sure it's phenomenal translation. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks for clarifying that, Patrick. So the question becomes, well, why did Google kill it? I mean, obviously, a lot of people are using it. I know we run across it a lot, um, especially those that have limited budgets. And it kind of makes sense. This is a phenomenal tool. Well, we have a really detailed blog post on this um, that I would encourage you to to read. But in a nutshell, basically, um, the tool was used in a way that Google didn't intend. Uh, what they had thought was going to happen is there was going to be a community of translators that were going to be continually improving the content. Their idea was that we'll allow for this translation, but then when you have a suggestion or a correction, you would log in to the workshop essentially and make corrections. Those corrections would then make the machine translation engine more effective. And really it makes a lot of sense. I mean, that 
would have been phenomenal if folks would have used it that way, but it's not really, really what happened. People were just slapping this thing up on their website and it was a one-way street. We're going to just provide this translation, check a box. Hey, we're all set. In fact, I even saw, it's interesting, people were even using it because of course you could access it via API as well. People were also using it to provide service uh, with no improvement cycle. In other words, uh, I saw there's a um, uh, a company that does IEPs and they pretty much say, hey, we do translation in 80 languages and it's in real time for IEPs. I mean, you think of how ridiculous that is. This is a plan that's put together, a custom plan that says, hey, this is how we're going to educate your child because they have a special need and we're going to machine translate machine translate this into Urdu or Another language that's very difficult and rare and machine translation engines haven't necessarily proven to be very effective. So it's really a flawed strategy. Um, For me, I guess the question becomes now what, Patrick? So here you are, you're a client, you've been using the Google widget. What do we do? How do you go forward? It's like, I can't use this anymore. This link is dead on my site. What do we do? Yeah, before we get into that, I want to jump in with one other point on... um on how the widget works. I think like you said, kind of in an ideal world, you'd have translators editing and fixing that content. Cause the idea is right. You're training the machine translation engine as you go. But if you keep piling in garbage machine translation into the training, you're training it with garbage. So it's going to keep outputting garbage. So it's really just a vicious cycle. Like you said, of no one's touching it, no one's improving it. So, I mean, basically it turns garbage into more garbage when really the idea was to, to take that bad machine translate or the, the base level of machine translation and elevate that to maybe a closer to a human translation level, but really it's just set at the bottom there in terms of the quality of it. That's a really good point, Patrick. And, and we should also clarify that Google still has the translation service, but now it's offered by API. So I think, and I, I can't speak for Google, but I think what their idea there is, is that in order to access the engine now, you need to have API access and probably an application that will better facilitate translation and correction. So, um, you know, and there's still still a place for MT. We've done plenty of shows on that. We're going to talk about that a little bit in the strategy, but um, they're just not going to allow you to just sort of slap it on your site without any oversight, you know, without any um, improvement cycle. So that's that's really the idea there. So great clarification. But Patrick, um, where does a client, what do they do now? So you, you're the client, you've got this thing um, on your site and now it doesn't work. What's next? Yeah, I think the first thing to do is to look at and identify your CMS if you're using one and that's your content management system. So what are you? What service are you using to build your site um, to kind of do all the backend work on it so that when you go to the URL, it works and looks like a great functioning website. Um, so, so some common CMS systems that we run into are uh, WPML, uh, so that's WordPress or Kentico, Drupal, um, Sitecore is another one. There's plenty of them out there. Um, so what we first will look for is, is there a connector to that website that can facilitate translation? So that basically says, is there a way from your CMS to a translation management system? Is there a way for those two systems to talk and exchange translations back and forth? Um, So that's really going to be the best bet if you do um, have a CMS is to use some sort of connector with a translation agency. Um, Or if that's not an option, there's also the proxy approach. 
um, where really the translation agency could host the website for you and really do translations in that method. Exactly. So that's the important point. As you know, we, we're, we're going to go over the sort of the inputs of what the discussions should be with your translation service provider. So, you know, again, you're that webmaster, the marketing person, the school administrator who's been using the Google site all these years, the Google widget all these years. Let's walk through the steps. So Patrick is correct. The first thing to talk about is the CMS and how will you exchange content? The next thing is risk. So it's not that we that a translation service provider can't provide machine translation through that connection. They can. But again, there's plenty of things in this world that just because you can do doesn't mean you should do. So are you a pharmaceutical company? Are you a school district? Are you just a brochure site? Like what sort of, you know, what sort of risk is inherent with your content? If your content is instructions on how to use something, in other words, it's like a help site and it tells people how to use a drug, no, that's not machine translation. Or if you're in a high-risk industry and you feel like the cost of an error will, will, will cost you a great deal, either monetarily um, or in the ability to acquire a client, if that happens, then you have to look at a different solution. So the thing to think about is, based on this level of risk, and your understanding of what's going to happen if the content is incorrect, you can determine what type of workflow you'll pull in. Will it be pure machine translation? Will it be machine, machine translation plus editing? Will it be human translation? Maybe just one linguist because it's um, that's enough. Or will it be a full ISO compliant uh, workflow where you have a tra human translator, a human editor with full functional review of the site afterwards? The next question is, what are your marketing goals, right, Patrick? So mm -hmm. what, what what happens after that? What is, what's the, the next input? Before we jump in there, I wanted to give you um, some good examples on risk. I know we've mentioned these before. Um, we did a packaging project for a customer where they did machine translation on their packaging for their products, a small little thing you'd find at any big box retailer. But they did machine translation on it uh, to save, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks on the translation for however many languages they were going into. Uh, but they sent it to the retailer and the retailer said, eh, we're rejecting this. It's machine translation and it's bad. So then they had to reprint that package and that cost them tens of thousands of dollars. So like you said, really evaluating that risk. But at the other end, we do have use cases for machine translation. Uh, we had a customer come in a week or two ago with the results of a survey. So that's, they were um, people were taking a survey in different languages that an open text field and they were able to type in their responses. That might be a little bit more appropriate for machine translation where you really just need to get the gist of what the inputs are for those surveys. It's really not critical that it's word for word, 100% accurate. You just want to know, you know, is this one saying we're doing a good job versus a bad job? Is it say we have good customer service versus bad customer service? So in that situation, maybe the results of a survey might not need that high level of service, and maybe you can get away with machine translation. So I think it's important. We talk about these risk cases all the time to just kind of say, kind of separate when it's okay to consider machine translation versus versus not consider machine translation. Absolutely. And, you know, the next input would be, you know, what type of content are you serving up? Like, in other words, if your website is a sem just simply a brochure site, and what you sell is very low risk, um, 
maybe machine translation is okay. I, I, you know, I, that's a question that you have to, um, you know, that's a, a big decision for the customer, right? Um, you have to weigh all the risks. You have to talk about, you know, what the goals are and figure it out. But on the other hand, if, you know, it's a help site and it's meant to inform people, it's meant to inform people how to use your product, or if it's a client acquisition site, in other words, your site is meant to leverage SEO in multiple languages, attract as many clients, convert as many clients as possible. The question becomes, are you putting your best foot forward? If it's a straight machine translation, are you embarrassing yourself in front of a potential client? I mean, that's that's really the question, Patrick, right? Yeah, I think it's also important um, to communicate your your goals of whatever project you're doing to the translation provider, um, because we kind of know these things and we evaluate them on every project. Um, for example, we do some informed consent forms for, for drug trials. Obviously those are super important to have extremely accurate. So it's obviously going to be towards a higher level of service. Um, but if we don't know what you're doing with this content, if you just send us a brochure, our default is going to be to quote it with that highest level of service so really communicating, you know, where is this going? What are you doing with it can help us to evaluate and match you to the proper level of service. Well, that's perfect, Patrick. So in summary, before we jump into strategy, because that's the, the exciting part, um, you need to evaluate, you know, what CMS are you using? How will you exchange content with the translation service provider? What risk is involved with your content? And what are the marketing goals of the site? Once you have all of that content, that can then form your strategy. So you take the inputs from those, that discussion of those three points and then create your strategy. And there's a bunch of different ways to do this. And, you know, Patrick, I know you've worked on a lot of these types of projects, but um, I thought maybe I just go over high level suggestions and then we can dig down a little bit deeper. You know, there's a hybrid approach. So, I think it's best to form these maybe in, a, in the idea of a use case. Uh, so let's talk about a hybrid approach. Um, that might be where you say, listen, I have a limited budget. Uh, I'm trying to inform a bunch of parents about how to interact with our school district. And I have about 10 pages on the site that are incredibly important. I have about another 30 pages that are somewhat important. And I have about another 50 pages that are nice to have, so maybe not that important. Well, as a translation service provider, you can sit down with, the, with uh, the school administrator and say, well, all right, if these 10 pages are really important, why don't we human translate those 10? Then the next 30 that are moderately important, maybe we can use one linguist so it's a little less expensive on human translation. Or maybe we can use MT plus post-editing. So that's sort of a middle ground um, and then those pages that aren't really that important, you can make a decision to either not translate them because nobody's visiting them anyway, or you can translate them with machine translation. And as you have budget or you determine that those pages become more important, you translate them. Yeah, I think it's important to consider, like you said, um, what are the highest value pages? And those can change over time too. Just because let's say perhaps we do machine translation on a low value page that page be does become popular and relevant and you need to you know, flush that out and put in human translation. It's certainly a fluid process. Just because we've delivered machine translation once doesn't mean we can't edit, update, or replace whatever's on your site. 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, again, there's so many different ways to attack these projects. And I think if we can bring up some examples, I think that's helpful. So I think of proxy translation um, or a proxy, the, the proxy approach, the proxy website translation. And by the way, um, you know, just quickly define that. That's essentially, Patrick mentioned earlier, where um, your translation service provider is hosting your translated pages but then gives you a way to um, integrate it into your URL structure so the end user doesn't really know. The reason that approach might work for some people is if you say, listen, I don't have a content management system. I don't have a webmaster. I don't have someone to manage these tasks. Um, the proxy approach is nice because what will happen is anytime you change the site, so let's say the translation service provider translates the initial seed, they get the translation published. It's done using the service that you prefer, whether it's the human translation, the hybrid approach, the machine translation, whichever method you determine is appropriate. When you make changes to the site, the proxy service automatically notifies the translation service, and you can do a couple things. You can automatically machine translate those changes, but then put the job in a queue to be human translated. So you have all sorts of flexibility on maintaining it. Because remember, that's always something to think about, too. You translate a website, um, and again, probably one of the things that people loved about the Google uh, widget, so you didn't have, you know, set it, forget it. You add things, whatever. It's always automatically translated. The hell with it if it's terrible, but at least it's always translated. Well, the proxy approach gives you sort of a middle ground because now the, the translation service provider can, uh, you know, be... Um, uh, be notified when there's changes. It can be machine translated, put into a queue for human translation. It's kind of nice. But we have something similar on connectors, right, too, uh, Patrick? I mean, how does how does that update process or that maintenance process look like when you're using a connector? Mm -hmm. So we have, um, we can implement as much or as little automation as is needed or requested by the customer. But basically, um, Whenever you're working in a CMS connector, what it looks like is basically a shopping cart of all your content with the pages um, and any different types of content. Those could be posts, pages, whatever they might be. Uh, basically, you check the boxes of which ones you want. You hit send. They come over to us, and then we'll see any new text um, that comes through. Um, and that's great, like you said, for updating and maintenance is maybe you've changed just a few sentences on a page. When you send the, <clears throat> when you send the full page through to us, all we'll see is the new content. So we won't re need to reinvent the wheel every time and say, oh, what's changed, what's not. That is just automatically subtracted from the job because it lives in the translation memory. So really, even with the, the CMS connector approach, um, it's pretty similar to the proxy one. It's just a matter of getting that connector installed up front and where that content goes um, when it's passed through the connector. Perfect. Um, so as you can see, there's a way for this to work, whether it's a CMS, you know, connection or using a connector or the proxy approach, which, you know, gives you where you have little technology to add other than just your website, your published website. So there's a way to do these things. It's, um, uh, it's not impossible to replicate the functionality of that Google widget. So um, in closing, and then we'll see what Patrick has to say, and then we'll talk about our, our, our biggest takeaways. Make sure to define the case very well with your translation service provider. Let them know about your ideal state. This is the way I would like my website to work. This is the way I would like to maintain it. How can it be done? 
Talk about your budget, what languages you'd like to use, what behavior you would like to see happen when someone hits a page that isn't translated, or should they all be translated? You know, these are all like really, really important questions. Um, Patrick, before we do biggest takeaways, final observations. Uh, yeah, I think like you, like you said, it's just super important to communicate everything to your translation provider. Um, if you just say, can you translate my website? We're going to come back with a lot of questions. Um, so really having the devils in the details. Um, so really having those details ironed out. Um, and honestly, I mean, we like to be brought in during the development side of the website, if it's at all possible. Um, we can kind of provide some tips and pointers of how to make your site more easily translatable. Um, whereas maybe if we're brought in on the back end, the English site is done, they'll come in and say, okay, translate it. Maybe some sort of settings or some sort of the architecture really doesn't lend itself well to translation. So if at all possible, start having those conversations during the development phase. And I think as a customer, you'll, you'll learn a lot about how to develop a site in a way that lends itself to be easily translatable. Perfect. Well, let's segue into this, Patrick. What is your biggest takeaway? So we covered a lot of topics um, today or a lot of points of uh, relevant points to this discussion on how you should proceed, what you should do. What was the most important thing for you? Um, it's something I think we briefly mentioned, uh, but I think it's super important of the testing phase whenever you're translating a website. I think really testing and hammering out the details in the exchange of content, whatever system or service you are using, you know, how do you send it to your translation provider? What do they send you back? Um, and really how that's going to look once they send you content back, what type of work do you have to do in order to publish those pages? So I think really hammering out the details of the content exchange can save you a ton of time down the road. If you're able to do that on the front end, it's going to save you a ton of time because, I mean, you can be translating hundreds or thousands of pages. So really hammering out that workflow is going to be super important. Great. Thank you. Yeah, that is an important part. I think for me, and it's maybe a subtle point, but that idea of just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. Um, you know, I see it with websites, you know, especially the ones that are still maybe using um, the, the the Google widget. Um, do you really have customers that speak 80 languages? Is that a thing? Um, if it is, great, then fine. You know, choose the 80 languages. But just know that going forward, that's likely not going to be attainable, right? Um, unless you're driving revenue by having the translation in 80 languages, now don't add clutter to your site. Um, publish in the languages that make sense, the ones that drive revenue or the ones that drive connection with your constituents. And be diligent. Uh, understand where you're seeing your traffic. Work with your webmaster. Um Look at Google Analytics and look at the pages that are important to your users. Um, that's to me. That's that's really uh, the key. And have a great conversation with the translation service provider to make sure you cover all the bases. So I cheated, and there's two things there, but um, two things with a lot of sub bullet points. So I'm going to stop now. And for this episode of Translation Confidential, this is Peter and Patrick signing off. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.